namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami. So uh, today's theme for Sunday afternoon talk is uh, removing the dart. And um, probably many of you who've spent any time around Buddhist uh, scriptures or, or um, listening to Buddhist teachings will be uh, somewhat familiar with this, this uh, particular simile that the Buddha used and what the, the basic theme is. If you're if you're not, then you might be wondering what on earth <laughs> what on earth is it going to be about today? You know, is it about sort of de- how to dig out splinters? But, um, so the uh, the simile of removing the dart or, or uh, the arrow is a uh, an image that comes from a, a discourse of the Buddhas called the uh, uh, the Chula Malunkya Putta Sutta. The shorter discourse to Malunkya Putta, and uh, the story goes that Malunkya Putta was a, a monk um, who had uh, a lot of interest in all kinds of uh, esoteric knowledge and um, had uh, a whole variety of philosophical questions that he wanted to ask the Buddha, and he was really frustrated that the Buddha wouldn't answer. Uh, and there's a standard list of, of ten. Um, philosophical points that uh, that you get over and over again in the scriptures, things like is the the Atman one thing and the the universe another, or the Atman and the universe are they united? Is the universe eternal and the the Atman the Atta is that is the universe eternal and the, and the Atman uh, impermanent, or is the Atman uh, permanent and the universal and the universe impermanent, or are they both permanent? Or what happens to an enlightened being after the death of the body? Do they exist? Do they not exist? They both exist and not exist. They neither exist nor not exist, and, and on and on. And so the Buddha stoically refused ever to answer any of these questions. And Malunkya Putta was very annoyed by this and thought, well, this is, this is ridiculous. If he knew, he should tell us. And if he doesn't, if he doesn't tell us, then, he, and then it must be that he doesn't really know. And so I'm going to go and put it right to him. I'm going to go and tell him. You know, if he doesn't answer these questions, I'm going to disrobe. So there. <laughs> and uh, in this sort of fit, in this fit of pique, he goes to the Buddha and then he tells him this. You know, please, venerable sir, I'm going to ask you to answer these questions about the nature of the the soul, the Atman, and the nature of the universe. What happens to an enlightened being at the death of the body? And and if you don't answer these questions, then I'm I'm going to leave the holy life. I'm going to disrobe. And then the Buddha said. Um, Malunkya Putta, when you went forth into the holy life and you were ordained as a monk, did we make a deal that if, if you ordained, I would answer these questions for you? And he said, uh, no, venerable sir. <laughs> he says, well, <laughs> he said, do, do you know why it is that I, I don't answer these questions? Because uh, I've, uh, I have no, I've not declared these, uh, these points. I've not revealed these because these are... Uh, are unbeneficial. They are not connected to the the, the roots, the, the basis of the holy life. These are uh, these kind of issues don't lead towards dispassion, to disenchantment, 
to peace, to uh, full realization, to liberation, to enlightenment. They don't lead to Nibbāna. That's why I haven't declared them to you. And um, what have I declared? I've declared to you the nature of suffering, dukkha, the origin of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, and the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. Why have I declared that to you? Because this is what is of of benefit, this is what's connected with the basis of the holy life. uh, These teachings lead to dispassion, to disenchantment, to to peace, to liberation, to nibbāna. And um, so Malunkya Puddha is not particularly uh, impressed by that. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, but still, if you knew, you, were, well, yeah, you should reveal these things to us. And, and the Buddha said, well, look at it like this, Malunkya Puddha. So say there is a soldier, uh, someone who's wounded in battle and he's shot, uh, shot with an arrow, or shot with a poisoned arrow. And um, there he is lying on the battlefield and his friends come up with a, with a field surgeon and about to pull the arrow out and he says, wait, 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 wait. Uh, I'm not going to let you pull the arrow out until you find out the name of the person who shot me. And not only that, but you, I want to know um, what village he came from, uh, what was, whether he was tall or short or medium height, whether he was dark-skinned or, or uh, golden-skinned or fair-skinned, um, what was the... Um, uh, the kind of bow that he used, was it a short bow, was it a medium bow, was it a long bow? <laughs> what kind of string the bow was strung with, was it a hemp string, was it a sinew string, was it a, uh, a vine string? You know, what kind of shaft, was it a wild wood shaft, was it a cultivated wood shaft? <laughs> what kind of uh, feathers, what bird they came from, the feathers on the shaft of the arrow, are they peacock feathers, are they goose feathers, are they crow feathers, are they rook feathers, you know, they eagle feathers... Yeah. What kind of sinew the, the uh, arrow tip was tied on with? Is it monkey sinew, cat sinew, dog sinew, wolf sinew, lion sinew, cow sinew? Uh, and then he goes through this long, long list, as you can tell. So by the time that they'd found all the answers to those questions, a man would have died. And he said, Malunkya Putta, whether or not one has the view the world is eternal, you know, the universe is eternal, or, or the... the um, the Atman is eternal or is not eternal, still, there is, there is dukkha, there's birth, there's aging, there's sickness, there's death, there's separation from the loved, there's association with the unloved, um, there is dukkha. And so, you know, this is uh, uh, in exactly the same way, by the time you get to all of your philosophical questions, you, you will have died. And the point being that uh, it's far more useful to pull the arrow out <laughs> and to, uh, to, solve, uh, to look at the issue of, of dukkha. Uh, rather than to spend time on all of these uh, philosophical issues and kind of extraneous aspects of, of the universe. And, um, and also there's another very famous teaching that the Buddha gave um, when he was uh, staying in Kosumbi, and there was a, a forest outside of Kosumbi, a forest of singsapa trees. And he's walking through the woods with a, a number of the monastic community, and he reached down to the, to the ground and he picked up a handful of leaves and said, what do you think? There's a number of uh, leaves in my hand, greater or lesser than the number of leaves in the forest. So of course the, the monks with him say, um, well, you know, they could see there was, there was some kind of trick coming. <laughs> <laughs> they know when the Buddha asks a question that there, there's a certain you know, direction to it. So, um, well, the number of leaves in your hand is very small and the number of leaves in the forest is, is very great. And the Buddha said, well, even so, um, what, I, uh, what I know is comparable to the leaves in the forest. What I teach you is comparable to the leaves in my hand. 
and why do I and why do I uh, uh, not teach you everything that I know? Because everything that I know, you know, or of all the things that I know, much of it is not beneficial. It's not uh, t- uh, connected to the holy life. It doesn't lead to dispassion and to liberation, to to nibbana. And, and why uh, do I teach you these these few things? Because what I do teach you is connected with uh, with the holy life, connected with dispassion, with enlightenment, with nibbana. And what do I teach you? I teach you dukkha, <laughs> the origin of dukkha, you know, the uh, cessation of, of dukkha, the cessation of suffering, and the way leading to the cessation of suffering. That's what I teach you. And so we can often feel like the Buddha is really being a bit stingy. We kind of tend to side with Malunkya Putta saying, yeah, but I mean, if you know all this stuff, I mean, there's some amazing things that you could know. I mean, after all, origin of the universe, the entire nature of the, the sort of karmic history of the of the of the world and how and why everything works just as it does. I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. And I confess that when I, I was um, newly in the monastery and I, I heard these these stories, um, because I my my entry point into um, spiritual life was somewhat through the Rudolf Steiner tradition, and I used to go to these lectures in London um, of a fellow called Trevor Ravenscroft, and he used to give these spectacularly interesting, fascinating. Sort of encyclopedic discourses on you know the karmic history of the human race and the origins of all the different um, uh, sort of groups of, of um, spiritual beings in the in the European tradition and the background of Christianity and all these sort of uh, different dimensions of the planes of knowledge and different spiritual hierarchies and all this kind of fantastic, colourful stuff. And I used to think, wow. Wouldn't it be great to really understand all of that and know how it all works and just see the whole thing, the sort of wheels within wheels within wheels of how it all works? So I guess it was from the aftermath of having a, a sort of a, an interest in all of that, the kind of world, the invisible worlds and the, the um, past lives, future lives and all of that. I had this suspicion that, well, that's what they put in the books. But my suspicion, maybe the Buddha had this sort of, this sort of inside track. There was this special little clique yeah, the inner circle <laughs> that he passed on. He 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 actually gave this uh, secret knowledge about how it all works and where it all came, where it all comes from, and where where it's all going, and, and uh, the uh, the kind of inner story that wasn't for the masses, you know, but for us sort of more advanced beings, <laughs> for the special initiates, and uh, they would maybe get this uh, this. Um, esoteric knowledge and I had this theory I conjured up well maybe Rahula maybe his son you know he passed it on to Rahula and he was he somehow carried carried it along and uh, it's this sort of hidden esoteric teaching and yada 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 (laughs) the way you do when you're 21 you're kind of imagining this um, uh, sort of uh, elaborations on uh, on this kind of uh, very straightforward and clear spiritual teachings and then uh, as time went by, I became, it became more and more clear that no. <laughs> when it said that the Buddha didn't talk about it, he didn't talk about it. And it wasn't so he, he, he only talked about it to Sariputta or to Rahula or Moggadana. It's like, no, he didn't, he didn't talk about it to anyone because it really was not useful. It was not beneficial. And so uh, after a couple of years in the monastery, I gave up on my theory. <laughs> but uh, that, that was some kind of special current of, of esoteric knowledge. Because there's something in us that, that hungers for that, that li- likes that kind of idea of, of figuring out how it all works and having a, a kind of uh, recipe for the, um, um, 
the exact mechanics of our human life, you know, where we come from and, uh, and how it all works and what's going on behind the scenes. But the, the Buddha was really uh, resolute that over and over again when these questions come up. He just says, I teach one thing, dukkha and the ending of dukkha. <laughs> That's it. And so much of his teaching is, is, is pointed right at that and, and homes right in on that. Now we might think that uh, nowadays, um, well, you know, we don't really care so much about um, past lives and future lives or the spiritual hierarchies or the karmic history of the, of the universe. And you think, well, I don't really care about that stuff. But still, uh, in our current day and age, even with a very uh, secular approach towards uh, understanding, what we, we are still very much in the same position as Malunkia Putta in, in many, many ways because like, this is known as the information age. And uh, we're all bombarded by uh, huge quantities of, uh, of facts and figures and data. Just the, uh, it used to be just the, the newspapers and the radio, and then, and then the TV came along, and then now the internet is like a kind of avalanche you know, uh, with uh, the uh, quantity of uh, facts and figures and information, news that we can, uh, we can absorb is, is just staggering. It's, uh, it's completely um, yeah, un... Uh, undigestible, the, the degree and the quantity of it. But still, we, we lap it up, don't we? Right? <laughs> I'm not just, uh, I'm, maybe I'm being a bit presumptuous. <laughs> but for, for most of us, there, we have this, this feeling of, of being interested in information and stories and uh, the news and facts and figures about all these different aspects of the world. And we want to find out. Somehow we feel it's, it's important to know. And we find ourselves filling our, our minds with all these sort of significant and interesting uh, facts about about life, and it's not as though these things are, are a waste of time or are are useless. They even can be connected with our, our livelihood. I remember some years ago um, on the, this issue talking with a, a fellow who was a this is in the in America. This fellow who was a doctor up in Seattle, and he his field was one particular kind of lung disease, it like not even just lung uh, <laughs> lung medicine generally, but the one particular disease was his field. And, um, and he was on a retreat with me and he was bemoaning the fact of how, how hard he had to work uh, just, to, just to keep up reading the literature that was written about his one, one field, just his one disease that he, he specialized in, just reading what was being written about it uh, on a daily or weekly basis. It was hard to keep up. And I remember the look on his face. I said, so, yeah, is there, I said to him, is there really that much? And he gave me this look and said, it's an abyss. <laughs> like this is a plaintive expression on his face, like, oh, you wouldn't believe. So that was you know, five, ten years ago. And so nowadays, uh, it's amazing, isn't it? Just the, the, the quantity of, of stuff that is uh, around. And so the, the mind keeps being drawn to finding out about this, finding out about that. And then the sense of, of uh, feeling that somehow we're going to be enriched or this is something that we ought to know or something that's going to be good for us. When um, one way this was expressed, uh, I, I was recollecting, uh, thinking about this, this subject, was uh, some lines from a T.S. Eliot poem, um, Choruses from the Rock, where he says, where is the wisdom that, that we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge that we have lost in information? 
Where is the wisdom that we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge that we have lost in information? And I thought that expressed, he wrote that years ago, but I thought it was a kind of motto of the information age, that we are we're so inundated with, with information, with, with news and input about everything <laughs> that uh, we had never even heard of before, and now we, we find ourselves uh, endlessly hungering for, for uh, more input about but we, we lose not just uh, knowledge as in understanding, but also the quality of wisdom itself. And so in terms of, of uh, this particular issue, um, what it's about is learning how to, to not get lost in the information, and not even to get lost in the knowledge, but to, to keep our attention focused on, on the genuine quality of, of wisdom, what, what wisdom is. Uh, as I was saying, the um, uh, when I was a, 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 I first came across these teachings, and, and um, one of the reasons I was fascinated by those uh, uh, talks that I went to in, in London back in the seventies, and all this uh, uh, information about the the spiritual hierarchies and the karmic history of Europe and uh, all that that kind of area is in a way what all spiritual traditions are, are centered upon. And if you, if you think about it, there's, at least for, my, for myself considering it, it seems like there's, there's three questions that um, all religions s- seek to answer. And these are, where do we come from? Where are we going? And what am I supposed to do now? That, that sums it up. <laughs> Where do we come from? Where are we going? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do now? And that so most religions answer those with uh, an origin story of how the universe got created, you know, how this whole thing came into being, what what's the nature of, of humanity, where how we got hatched in the first place. It comes up with a particular destination, whether it's uh, the kingdom of heaven or um, union with Brahman or or um, whatever it might be, but there's a there's a destination that uh, that our fulfillment can lead towards, or you know, in in some uh, uh, future state, uh, heaven or hell, or um, uh, whatever whatever way it may be formed with the the religious tradition, and then the what are we supposed to do now? It's again particular to the the religious tradition, but it's it it's always they're always trying to tell us how to live and what's the the best way to to function in accord with the reality described by those those traditions, and one of the interesting things about uh, uh, the about the Buddha's teaching, and in in, in relationship to this, the issue of of uh, removing the dart, uh, getting to the the issue of of uh, of dukkha, is that it's a, is probably the only world religion that doesn't really center around an origin story. Now you do have uh, in the Pali Canon you do have tales of how you, the universe works, but it's it's interesting insofar as the Buddha says, okay, if you want to know how a, a universe begins, it's like this, uh, and uh, say in the Diga Nikaya, the Aganya Sutta, uh, that's Sutta twenty-seven, and then the one before it, twenty-six in the Diga Nikaya. He describes, uh, you know, uh, and it comes about that after a very, a very long period of time, there's, uh, there's a, uh, 
a contraction of the universe. The whole universe contracts, and then most during that time, most beings are born in the Arvasara Brahma realm, up in the, the high Brahma realms, and then the universe starts to expand. There's a big bang, and then the other uh, realms of existence come into being, and then beings are born in coarser and coarser and coarser realms, and it evolves to a certain point. The universe reaches its limit, and then and then collapses again. The beings are born with a variety of different lifespans, and then it kind of grows to a certain level, and then the the universe starts to contract there. The uh, fabric of the universe is consumed uh, in uh, uh, various kinds of conflagration, and then it comes. Then that universe comes to an end. It, it comes to a point of universal contraction. So there's various descriptions like that: how beings uh, uh, start off in high realms, and then over time get born in lower and lower realms, and then uh, at the end of an eon, they all get reborn in the Abhasara Brahma realm, and so on. But it's, 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 uh, it's, what's fascinating is that, yes, this is how universes work, and this is how beings come into existence, but that's not really that big of a deal. You don't need to be concerned about it. <laughs> it's very much a side issue. And even those, of, those people who here who have grown up in Buddhist countries, you might have, have heard those kind of origin stories. But isn't it interesting how that's not really the central feature of Buddhist tradition? It's not made that much of, like the stories of, of Genesis or, or such like. Um, and what you you have in the the Buddhist tradition instead is a, a whole way of, di- of a whole different way of looking at the world. The um, because it's uh, when when the Buddha talks about the world, it's not just the the sort of external universe or how different realms of being or the the planet and the stars and everything comes into being, but uh, there's a much more of a psychological approach to what the world is. And so that uh, the Buddha said, um, that by which we know, that by which one uh, perceives the world and conceives the world, that is called the world in the dispensation of, of the, the Tathagata. So the way in which we know the world, that's called the world. And, how, what, and what is the means by which we know the world? The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. So uh, that's what the, the, the Buddha called the world, is, is our experience of the world. And so that in terms of, of um, uh, say, understanding this, this issue, uh, it's to do with uh, seeing the origin of the world, not in terms of a big bang and a big crunch or, or realms of existence, but seeing how our experience of life takes shape. And so that what the Buddha did was he, in a sense, made a, 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 an emphasis on our experiential, uh, say, patterning, how the, the feeling of independent existence comes into being, how we experience ourself in here, the world out there, and out of that, how the experience of disharmony or dukkha, suffering, you know, arises from that, and then similarly, how that can be brought to an end. So rather than having an origin story and a destination off with union with Brahma or the kingdom of God or whatever, um, being one with the, the Lord off in the future, the Buddha instead talked in terms of dependent origination, the, uh, which probably most of you are, are familiar with. This is a, a, a pattern that he, he described how the experience of separate existence arises. 
and how the, the experience of alienation or dukkha arises from that. So this the whole subject of dependent origination you could take a, several weeks of, <laughs> of talks. The, uh, I, I can just cover it very, very briefly. But what he talks about is how when there's ignorance, when there's a not seeing clearly, when we, when, when we don't see clearly, then this uh, brings about the, the um, say, the, the roots of the subject-object uh, division. It seems that when there's a lack of clear seeing, then, there's, then the, the, uh, um, the experience of a, a, uh, a knower here and a known over there, a subject and an object, starts to form. That crystallizes and, and takes root in the identification with the, the, the body and the, the six senses. And then also the objectification of the sense world. So it seems to be a me in here and a, and a world out there. Uh, the, the seen, the heard, the smelt, the taste, the touched. So that in that uh, shrinking of the, the, the picture, bringing the picture down to a tangible level, rather than um, saying you know, the, the origin of the world being uh, with the Big Bang, and saying, look, this is how our experience of the world arises. This is, and this is what we can know directly. This is what's useful to us. This is, uh, uh, this is how we can really understand our life. And rather than thinking in the sort of metaphysical or cosmological terms, he, bring, he brings it right down to this little microcosm. And as a general theme in the, the whole of the Buddha's approach, he tried to avoid making, making metaphysical statements. He tried to keep to what we could see and hear and, and, and touch with our own, uh, our own uh, experience, our own senses, rather than building his teaching around um, the, the saying there, there is uh, an, an ultimate reality that we can awaken to. I mean, he did say those kind of things, but uh, it's the very few and far between of the statements about, about ultimate reality. And mostly he, he, uh, he said, look, this is our experience. We, uh, we experience dukkha. Now, if there is... If we intuit that ultimate happiness is possible, if we intuit there is an ultimate reality, why are we not happy right now? Why is that? And so he points uh, 99% of the time at the experience of dukkha rather than than making uh, statements about past lives or future lives, which are are there, but he doesn't build his whole teaching around that. What he keeps as the centerpiece is this experience of dukkha. And so what he points to in that then is the is how this arises. So the dependent origination uh, is a way of analyzing the second, and the, particularly the second and the third noble truths, how dukkha comes into being and how it ceases. And what we have in, in, that, uh, uh, in that respect, this is what we, uh, uh, we are doing in terms of pulling out the dart, removing the dart, is A, the, the, the first and second noble truth recognizing I've been shot, <laughs> there, you know, I've got an arrow in me, and then the recognizing A, yes, I've been shot, and yes, B, this is a poisoned arrow, and that uh, and the, the, second, the third and fourth noble truths is yes, uh, the dart, the arrow can be removed, and, and then this is how to get it out, this is how to remove it. So that the... It, uh, Looking at dependent origination is a way of, of uh, recognizing this is the, the main issue in our life. This is the main, uh, the main problem. 
And so that in that seeing of, okay, there's a feeling of me here in a world out there, as eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. So when there is, when there is the, the, the six senses, then there is contact. With contact, then that leads to feeling. Feeling of pleasure, feeling of pain, or neutral feeling. And when there's feeling, then uh, if there is, if that quality of ignorance, or not seeing clearly is, is dominant, then we, we, we slide straight from uh, the experience of feeling, I say the feeling of pleasure, uh, moves to uh, I want. It moves to desire, the Vedana conditions tanha, the feeling conditions craving. And then rapidly craving conditions clinging, clinging conditions becoming, becoming conditions birth. Now, the, there are different ways of understanding this or, or looking at this. And uh, the, some of the classical descriptions talk about this in terms of dependent origination happening over several lifetimes. But uh, Ajahn Chah and also his, um, his contemporary Ajahn Buddhadasa particularly emphasized that how the, the, the most useful and helpful way of understanding dependent origination is seeing that, that this is mapping our experience of the present moment. Uh, Ajahn Chah's very pithy simile said, it's like, if you want to understand dependent origination and watch it all happening, it's like falling out of a tree and counting the branches on the way down. It says, uh, mostly it's, 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 a bit too, it's all happening a bit too fast to, you, to keep track of everything, but thud, you know it hurts when you hit the ground. <laughs> that much we know. We know when we reach the end of the cycle, we get to the dukkha bit. Ow! That hurt. <laughs> we maybe couldn't track all of the... Uh, the um, the succession of qualities of, of uh, attachment on the way down, but uh, we we have that laid out by the Buddha, uh, and we can use that as a template for mapping our experience, seeing how sense contact leads to feeling, a feeling of like, feeling of dislike, neutral feeling. That feeling uh, then conditions craving, craving conditions clinging. So that you can think of this as a rising wave where there's a feeling of, oh, that's interesting, or, or, or that's nice. And then that's nice going to, oh, that's nice, like, I want one. <laughs> and then I want one to, I gotta have one. And then I gotta have one, like, I'm gonna get one. <laughs> so that's tanha upadana bhava. The tanha is, uh, I want. Uh, upadana clinging is, you know, I gotta have. Bhava is, I'm going to get. And uh, uh, I often like uh, talking about bhava in terms of, and anyone who's here in the advertising industry, please forgive me, but <laughs> this is what the whole consumer culture runs on bhava. As the whole advertising industry runs on that, the thrill of becoming. Because uh, it's, it's interesting, I've, I've, having read a few, of the many, many things that one can read <laughs> nowadays, countless magazine articles and, and features, um, uh, some of the materials I read on this issue say how if you rig somebody up with a galvanic skin response uh, measurer, when uh, when you uh, uh, measure the the degrees of excitement in an individual, the maximum excitement, or if you if you do it even in even more detail nowadays, and you measure the the amount of endorphins in the brain, the maximum pleasure comes just before you get the desired object. So as you hand the, the credit card over the counter <laughs> and the, 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 uh, the person behind the counter is just about to give you the thing you wanted, the new watch, the, the new 
uh, necklace, the new software, the new iPhone. And it's guaranteed to reach you, but it hasn't quite reached you yet. That's the maximum pleasure hit. Just before you get it. And even at once, the moment you've got it, disappointment starts to set in. <laughs> now, it's a mate, the Buddha had this figured out two and a half thousand years ago. So, and, and that, um, just by watching his own mind and watching how the world works. That's how the dependent origination functions, is that we, uh, we, that thrill of becoming, because the universe has shrunk to that one promise, this is, this is the thing I've got to have and I'm going to get it. Yes! Everything else in the world has vanished at that point. And so then we get the desired object and then you know, the new iPhone or the new, uh, you know, the new uh, set of furniture, the new uh, whatever it might be, the new meditation technique. <laughs> <laughs> Arriving on retreat, oh yes, at last I'm here, great, I've been longing for this all year. And, and as you're signing in, you're, you're feeling, oh, this is great. And then you walk into the shrine and you sit down and think, oh. <laughs> L- I remember last time I was here, I, s- I was thinking never again, wasn't I? <laughs> oh, no. How long is this? Oh, no. <laughs> Five days? Oh, my. I think we've all been there. <laughs> So then, the uh, uh, bhava becoming leads to birth. Birth leads to, so, uh, to aging, sickness and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. Soka parideva dukkha domana supayasa. As uh, one of our friends um, in, the, in, in California used to say, these are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> Soka parideva dukkha domana supayasa. That's the disappointment, um, the a- anxiety of the, having this, this precious and wonderful thing that you, you had, then the fear of losing it, the irritation at think, something coming, up, uh, coming along and interrupting it, the, uh, the, the pain of, uh, of loss, um, uh, or the you know, feelings of anguish when it's not working so well. And I, I, I'm remembering many years ago, um, sitting in this very hall, uh, and I was talking, waxing lyrically on exactly this subject. And there was two two young Thai women who came, and this was before the the courtyard existed. This was uh, outside. It used to be just the the, the uh, uh, kind of open tarmac. It used to be the old school playground. So this used to be the car park for the monastery, just out front here. And so these these two young women had come in this bright sort of cherry red Mercedes. And for those of you who don't know, owning a Mercedes in Thailand, at least it used to be the ultimate kind of achievement it's like if you've got a mercedes like you've arrived it's the kind of lay equivalent of arahantship <laughs> you know like you have really arrived or if it, you know this is this is a token this is a symbol of ultimate happiness and achievement is having a mercedes so i'm waxing lyrically along this on this subject and so i say so you know okay you come from thailand you come and study in england you graduate and you get a job and then you start making some money and you buy a mercedes and then you can take your picture and stand in front of the car and say mom look here we are with the red murk you know you know make it and send the pictures home and everyone's proud and they're kind of smiling i say and so then but then you know, we are you're so happy you got this car but then maybe you, you park it outside you don't you don't pay attention to to um, parking it in a in a, um, a very safe place and then Someone uh, comes along beside the car and then scratches it along the side, scratches it with a key, and then you, you start getting 
and you come out and you see someone's keyed your brand new Mercedes, well, maybe your brand new second-hand Mercedes. <laughs> Beautiful red Mercedes with a big scratch down the side. And, and then, you're, then you get really upset and angry and you want to murder them. And as I'm saying this, then one of the women starts getting the giggles. And as I'm, I'm sort of getting into my theme, she actually keeled over on her side. She was laughing so much, she actually fell over on her side. And the other one was getting redder and redder. There must be a story here. What's going on? And then uh, I said, um, why are you laughing so much? And she said, that's what happened last night. <laughs> so you should have heard her in the car on the way up here, what she was going to do to the person who messed up her car. <laughs> yeah, she was talking about all these kind of 10, you know, 50 kinds of torture she was going to wreak on this, this person. So I was not being prophetic. It was just kind of, it was just using a random example. But something that we think is going to make us so happy becomes a cause for, for great pain. So that uh, in pulling out the arrow, uh, in, it, in this uh, removing the dart, uh, it helps us so much to see how this works. This is how a simple uh, sensation or uh, something that we see or hear or smell or taste or touch, just uh, something that we think, when we grasp it in the, in the wrong way, then we, um, we are, are struck by, that's like being struck by the arrow. We are, we are causing that quality of dukkha of pain for ourselves, And then it's through really understanding and applying the Four Noble Truths, seeing that, oh yeah, I've, you know, my feeling of ownership for this thing, for this car or this, uh, this um, retreat, this um, um, particular job I've got, this relationship, this, these, um, this physical body, that feeling of ownership, that feeling of, uh, of attachment and so forth, these can be the, the very... That's that's the arrow that we're shot with. That feeling of of, uh, of dukkha as it's embedded in us. The um, and then the the other part of dependent origination is called dependent cessation, because uh, along with the arising of dukkha, the um, and the description of that and saying how this comes into being, the Buddha also pointed out. And then the second half of the the, uh, the the verses describing dependent origination, he says, when when there is no avijja, when there is when there is no ignorance, then there uh, that doesn't give the, a rise to sankara, and then sankara doesn't to formations. Formations don't give rise to consciousness. Consciousness to uh, nama and rupa, name and form, body and mind, and the six senses, and that whole cycle is not launched into being. And so that that. Uh, when we uh, understand that pattern, when we uh, train the mind to be awake, then uh, we are able to free ourselves from that cycle. We're able to pluck out the the dart. That's how we how we do it. So, in terms of the the sort of three essential questions, uh, you know, where do we come from? Um, in in terms of dependent origination, it's like well, where uh, we come from? The feeling of I and me and mine comes from ignorance. <laughs> That uh, Arjun Buddha Dasa was very, very fond of saying, he had this absolutely deadpan kind of expression, he'd say. In Buddhism we say, we do have a creator, ignorance. <laughs> ignorance is the creator of the world. <laughs> I can't do an Arjun Buddha Dasa face, no? I'm far too scrutable. No, he, was, he was extremely inscrutable. So, uh, 
Ignorance is where it, the, feel, the sense of me and my world comes from. And where it's going to is either, more, uh, is either to dukkha or to enlightenment, to either to more dukkha or to bodhi, to enlightenment, to liberation. And then what we're supposed to do now, the answer to that third question, is to uh, acknowledge that we've been shot by the arrow and then to, to pull it out. And so the way we do that, that pulling out, is through the, the cultivation of the Four Noble Truths, to, to apprehend this is dukkha, this is, this is the, uh, the feeling of alienation, this is the uh, origin of it, is through clinging and to, to let go. Uh, to uh, then the Third Noble Truth, to realize this is the cessation of dukkha, this dukkha can end, to realize that quality of cessation. And then the Fourth Truth, to cultivate the path leading to its cessation, to cultivate the, the Eightfold Path. Now in the, um, I think a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about resistance and transformation, I was talking about how dukkha can be a cause for faith to arise. So that's one, one of the exit points from the cycle, is after you've hit the ground, <laughs> you're going to think, oh! Uh, and uh, you know, the, the experience of, of dukkha and you are um, brought to a quality of wakefulness or, or curiosity, as I said last last time I was talking, uh, the Sunday afternoon was um, that dukkha. And the Buddha said the, the the quality of dukkha ripens in two ways: either as more dukkha or as search, uh, in confusion, more dukkha or in search. So that's one exit point from the cycle. That that after we've already. Um, uh, we're already disappointed and upset, then the recognition of, well, wait a minute, how did I get here? Or, like, uh, you know, <laughs> this happened with the last car as well. <laughs> so when am I, I going to learn? And, okay, I was so excited over the last iPhone, and, and now the one I've got is really boring because I want the next one. Or the one after that. <laughs> You're already hearing rumors about the, uh, the, the, the iPhone after next or the, the, the Canon G12, they rumor. Now exists. <laughs> so recognizing, hang on a minute, I've been here before. Now, now there must be a different way to handle this. So that's one of the exit points. Is uh, after dukkha's already ripened. Another of the exit points, and, and what is, mo- is classically is focused op- upon, and the, in a way is the the most uh, the, the the best way of getting the arrow out <laughs> is uh, at the the linking point between feeling and craving, between Vedana and Tanha. Because up to the point where, uh, in, the, in the cycle of dependent origination, where there's feeling, there can still be a very uh, solid quality of mindfulness. Uh, the realm of feeling in itself is, is an innocent realm. There's, a, there's not necessarily, necessarily any uh, uh, deep defilement involved there. Feeling um, pleasure, feeling pain, fe- neutral feeling. And the, this is classically recognized as the weakest link in the whole chain. Because at that point, if we develop a mindfulness of, of feeling, then we can see when the mind drifts from I like to I want, or uh, I don't like uh, to this is a problem. I've got to get away from it. So um, one, one story in particular in relationship to this that, uh, that Lumpur Sumedho has often told in the past is when he was a young monk at, uh, at Ajahn Chah's monastery, he'd been there a couple of years. 
And uh, it was the custom, I think it still is the custom, that uh, the students from the Ubon uh, Nursing College, would, uh, their teachers would bring them to, out to Wat Bapong and uh, have them spend a day there to receive teachings from, from Lung Po Chan, and since he passed away then from Lung Po Liam nowadays. And so um, Ajahn Sumedho, as a young monk, was spending uh, you know, a lot of time just doing formal practice by himself and and it's a, uh, the, the life there in uh, Wat Bapong was extremely austere and, and simple in those days. And, and that uh, the nuns' community and the monks' community was very, very separate. And there was virtually no interaction between the monastics and, and the lay community at all. But uh, since Ajahn Sumedha was the only foreign monk that was around, and he was kind of a local celebrity, it was this, this famed large white monk. <laughs> like the kind of white alligator that you, <laughs> people would go and see. Yeah, they would... That, uh, and usually Ajahn Chah tried to protect him somewhat, but occasionally he'd, uh, he'd uh, have him come out and meet people because they'd heard about this fabled you know, large white monastic. And so uh, on this particular occasion, this whole group of, of students, uh, student nurses from the college in Ubon had, had come out. So they, and they would, they would uh, take, come in the morning and they'd take the precepts and all very respectful in their, their neat uniforms, white and turquoise uniforms, all sitting very politely listening to the Dhamma. Um, but of course, in, uh, for um, the, for Ajahn Sumato and, and uh, in that situation, it was very rare that he would be in the company of, of fifty or a hundred young women. Um, and that uh, at the end of the day, after all the students had sort of taken their paid their respects and taken their leave, uh, Ajahn Chah, because also in Northeast Thailand, they're very straightforward about things like sexual attraction and life and death and and the kind of uh, mechanics of, of living and the, sort of, uh, the ordinary uh, matter-of-fact aspects of, of uh, the human world. And so he said, So, Sumato, what did that do to your mind? <laughs> yeah. Having all those attractive young women so close. And, and then what he said was, Chop, damn my owl. Which means, I like, but I don't want. And Ajahn Chah was so impressed with that that uh, for about the next two or three weeks, apparently, almost all his Dhamma talks were based around that theme. Because <laughs> he said, this is, this is the whole thing. This is exactly the, the issue. Um, because if you pretend that you don't like, you're in trouble. <laughs> if, you're, if you're kind of uh, I- ignoring or trying to um, pretend that that uh, feeling of, of interest or liking is not there, then you're... Um, you're deluding yourself, and especially if you're a young, untrained <laughs> you know, uh, person. Then you know you should expect that there's going to be feelings of attraction, or, or there's going to be some ke- some chemistry there. Or if uh, uh, if his answer had been um, yes, Lumpur, you know, I like and I want, and when can I leave? <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't have helped either. But he saw he wasn't suppressing it, he wasn't indulging in it, but he was recognizing. Yeah, you know, just uh, we have a very austere life here. Even when you get a, you know, a nice, uh, and you know, some some well cooked rice, you can get excited over that. You know, <laughs> an interesting lizard walking across your wall. You know, oh look at that. So life is very very plain at Wat Bapong. <laughs> so he said, yeah, but uh, but I don't want. And and Ajahn Chah was, uh, was pointing to, yeah, that's that's the the key issue because we can recognize 
there's liking, there's, there's the pleasant, but we don't have to let that transform into I want, I gotta have. And if we're mindful, it just stays at that point. And similarly, we can be with pain. And, and the, another of the, the Buddha's most famous teachings using the arrow or the dart is the Salata Sutta in the Sanyutta Nikaya. I think it's um, the, uh, um, it's often known as the two arrows, but I think its, it's official name is, is just the Salata Sutta. And it's um, Sutta number six in the, the 36th section of the Sangita, Salata Sutta. And uh, the Buddha says, um, if, uh, if we experience pain, physical pain, uh, this is like being shot with an arrow. But if on account of that, that pain, we then uh, get anguished and upset and we, um, we beat our breast and get you know, annoyed and frustrated, and, uh, then it's as if we're being hit by a second arrow. And so that if we're wise, uh, we'll only be hit by the first arrow. And that we will, uh, we will not create uh, upset, resentment, negativity uh, around that. So this is, a, a, again, it's a very simple teaching, but a very key one in terms of uh, recognizing no one escapes the first arrow. Even the Buddha had chronic back pain when he was an old man. In the, if you look at the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the discourse on the Buddha's last year, it says, he says, um, my body is like an old cart held together with straps and, and, uh, and string. Uh, it's, it's like a, uh, you know, an old broken down vehicle. He says, the, the only way I can, ex- I can experience comfort is to completely absorb my mind into emptiness. You know, otherwise, I'm, I'm experiencing physical pain. And, it, and it's not uncommon. If you, suttas that are given at the end of his, his lifetime, he, he says to Sariputta, Sariputta, my, back's, my back is paining me. Please give the Dhamma talk. <laughs> you know, because he's, uh, he's a totally enlightened being. He's a fully enlightened Samasambuddha, but he still had back pain. So that uh, even a Buddha doesn't get away from... So those of you who are thinking, if I really had my practice together, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't have arthritis or rheumatism or these migraines. The first arrow, no one gets away from. We all experience that. But the second arrow... Yeah, so the first arrow is non-negotiable. The second arrow is negotiable. <laughs> and that, that the Four Noble Truths, the dukkha of the Four no, as referred to in the, in the Four Noble Truths, that's principally the, uh, talking about the second arrow. That's about the anguish, the, the resentment, the negativity that we build up around the, the disliked. And so that just as... With um, with the pleasant, the like, we can we can cultivate the, the the attitude of I like but I don't want. So similarly, with the with the uh, the disliked, the painful, with our chronic back pain or difficult family members or our um, uh, various different kinds of physical and emotional pain that we that are, are non-negotiable that we that can't be got away from. We recognize it's entirely up to me whether. Well, I get hit by the second arrow. It's, it's, it, there can be painful feeling, physical or emotional, and it doesn't have to be a problem. So this is again refraining from crossing that bridge between Vedana and Tanha, between feeling and craving. Because also you might think, well, you know, the, the it's physical pain is one thing, but emotional pain is another. But it works in exactly the same way. We can experience sadness or grief. Again, even the Buddha, if he 
there's a, a passage where uh, after Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Mahamogalana had passed away, then the Buddha says, it's as if the ascent, he, he's sitting in a, 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 a teaching situation like this, and he looks out over the assembly and he says, it's as if the assembly was empty because Sariputra and Mogalana aren't here anymore. I get goosebumps <laughs> saying that. But the, the Buddha, he missed Sariputta and Mogalana. It's as if the assembly is empty because Sariputta and Moggallana are no longer here. So even the Buddha experienced that kind of, of sadness, of, of grief. But he also knew not how not to make a problem out of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not a problem. So these are, are the ways that we, uh, we can most effectively pluck the arrow out, the, this second exit point from the, the cycle of dependent origination is learning to develop a mindfulness of feeling, physical feeling, emotional feeling, and to, to see that bridge as we, as we get to it, the bridge of, of feeling, conditioning, craving, and this, realizing there's a choice here. I can choose to cross this. Like when you, if you have some kind of chronic pain or some uh, difficulty in your, in your life, some uh, feeling of loss or feeling of regret or feeling of, of resentment, some... Um, long-standing uh, conflict between yourself and another, you, you can recognize, yeah, it's uncomfortable that, that when I think of this person, <laughs> negative feelings come up, or that uh, when, when we meet, then I, I receive negative feelings from them. But it's still, it's up to me in this moment to, to make a problem out of that or not. That's, that's the choice. And that we realize that that. Uh, that choice is always open to us. We might think, yeah, but yeah, but Ajahn, you know, you don't know my problem. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm different <laughs> because my dukkha is really special. You know, it's kind of a unique brand that doesn't really quite fit into the categories you're talking about. It's all very well for the others, <laughs> for them, but for me, <laughs> my dukkha is really special. And I'm speaking from personal experience. <laughs> we can always feel like. Uh, but this is really unforgivable, or this is really you know, unrequitable, or this is really uh, incurable, and uh, and it really shouldn't, and it really shouldn't be this way. But uh, one time, uh, Ajahn Chah was visiting one of our monks, uh, one a Western monk who was in hospital in Bangkok, and he he had a lot of knee troubles, and he made the mistake of having both knees operated on simultaneously. He thought, well, get them both done at once, and he'll get it out of the way. Mistake. <laughs> So Lumpur went to see him in the hospital and made the and made the error of asking him, "So, how are you?" <laughs> the venerable launched into this uh, lengthy um, moan about uh, the um, the problems of being in the hospital and how difficult it was and how his, his knees weren't healing and how. Uh, basically, the theme was it shouldn't be this way. This is not fair. And after he continued for a while and then finally paused for breath. Lord Paul just said, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. Which is not very comforting. <laughs> but it's extremely realistic. It's like, no, this is, you know, this is how it is with a human body. It, it can be like this. There's no, nothing has gone wrong here in any essential way. It's up to you whether you create an argument with it or not. So maybe the last thing to mention then is that... Um, and I was referring to this before in terms of, of the uh, ending of, of dukkha, 
the the in a way the most fundamental exit point from the cycle of dependent origination is not to let it begin at all. <laughs> you know, the whole thing begins with ignorance, avidya, pachaya, sankara, ignorance, conditions, formations. Because of ignorance, there is a subject-object duality, self and other, this and that, here and there, and then that, that you know, what uh, Bhikkhu Nyanananda calls the, the nama-rupa-vinyana vortex, the sort of mind and body consciousness vortex, like a whirlpool of, the, the feeling of subject-object strengthens and strengthens till there's a me in here and a world out there and I'm solid. I'm a real thing here and the world is real out there. But if, we're, if there's genuine mindfulness, if there's true wakefulness, if there's vidya, if there's knowing, then the whole cycle doesn't begin. There's, uh, and as it says in the, the second part, avijaya taveva asesa viraga niroda. When there is, um, uh, when there is no ignorance... When there, when there is vijja, when there is knowing, then that doesn't. Uh, there is no arising of sankara. There is no arising of division of compoundedness uh, of the realm of things. There is no arising of self and other. There is no arising of the um, uh, the feeling of I separated from from the world, uh, and the, the quality of harmony is sustained from from the, the beginning. So that's the real challenge. This is the sort of most sort of deep tissue kind of practice, <laughs> most challenging, but also the most rewarding. If we can sustain the quality of vijja, of knowing, then none of the, that quality of, of, uh, of dukkha arises in the first place. So even when we get hit by that first arrow, even as it hits, we know. It's up to us, don't make a problem out of it. <laughs> that that's, that's the opportunity that we have. The... Um, Quality of awareness brings it to attention that Lada is through the door, the cups are clanking. <laughs> Three o'clock has come around, and so uh, I'll leave the um, formal talk there at that point and offer these thoughts for consideration, and then we can open things up for some questions in about 20 minutes' time. So please, uh, what I've said, take what is useful, and what is not, then please leave it aside.